Welcome to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for tuning in to KRCL's show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Coming up on the show tonight, community co-host Nick Burns and an interview with Professor Jorge Contreras about his new book, The Genome Defense, inside the epic legal battle to determine who owns your DNA. Professor Contreras is an adjunct professor of human genetics at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, where he earned the Distinguished Research Award in 2020. Coming up, a Sundance Film Festival review with Autumn Thatcher, our virtual red carpet correspondent, and I talked to two of the founders of the Latinx House, which returned to the festival with a full calendar of virtual programming, including La Guerra Civil, which marks the directorial debut of Desperate Housewives actress Eva Longoria Baston. The film itself showcases the role of boxing within Mexican and Mexican-American culture by narrating the ultimate glory fight between boxing legends Oscar de la Hoya and Julio Cesar Chavez 25 years ago. First up, if you haven't heard last night when Salt Lake City Mayor Erin Mendenhall gave her State of the City address, she announced Free Fair February. What does that mean? Fairs on all UTA services free February 1st through the 28th. So I got on Zoom with UTA board chair Carlton Christensen to find out more. Carlton, uh, Representative Briscoe, has said, let's make UTA free, period. And now with last night's announcement by Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall about free fair February, this looks like a pretty good test for a month here. Uh, yeah, it, it it will be. Uh, we'll learn. I think we'll learn quite a bit from this, and and uh, uh, it will give us some data and some background as to how effective free fair actually is, and also what kind of uh, unanticipated costs might be associated with it. I think the big difference between this and the legislative proposal is that there are other parties that are going to uh, contribute to help us offset the loss of fair reve- fair revenue. So who, what, when, where gets to ride free fare in February? Uh, so any, anyone uh, within our six county system uh, going really anywhere on our system uh, should be able to ride free. That includes uh, ski bus service. It includes front runner tracks and our bus and, uh, and uh, uh, our UTA on demand. So um, uh, you sh- any, people should try it out and go wherever they want that, uh, that our service can take them. You still live in your family home in Rose Park. What does this mean in February, let alone potentially as a test for free fare in general for the west side of Salt Lake? Well, you know, I, uh, oh, oh, uh, two weeks ago, I added an air quality monitor in my backyard and air quality uh, is... Um, an important piece, not only for our neighborhood, really, but for our area. And February has less than spectacular track, track record here locally. And so if if we can lift some of those days, uh, I think that's going to be important. Thinking more about my neighbors and others, um, sometimes even transit can be a financial barrier for them to getting to where they need to be, to getting them access to jobs where they might be able to take advantage of things. And so um, uh, I'm hoping that that will lead that. We've, we've changed a couple of our past programs to try to make them more affordable to those in the lower income brackets. But, um, but I think it will give them a chance to see if, if transit, uh, without there being a cost to it, could be a, a transportation solution, maybe minimizing their overall cost if they can go down to one car to a household or, you know, maybe no, no cars to a household. Maybe make a dent in our inversions and air pollution in the winter months too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, uh, you know, this coming week, despite today being a decent day, uh, it, the, the, lo- the end of this week doesn't look great. And, and I think, you know, there's many more days ahead. The other thing we're wanting to do is uh, also as part of this is celebrate the 20th anniversary of the 2002 Winter Olympics, and and transit played an important part in those Olympics. We know we'll play an important part if we're lucky enough to have them come again, and and so we want to celebrate uh, both of those. And it's a lot easier to celebrate with clean air. Where can people find out more about Free Fair February with UTA? 
uh, please go to our website at go at, at rideuta.com. It's www.rideuta.com. And that's UTA Board Chair Carlton Christensen. Check tonight's show notes for a link for more details about Free Fair February on UTA. You can also find things like that under the Community Affairs tab, under Connect, under Go Vote, and under Rallies and Resources. For instance, Monday, January 31st is the deadline to comment on an updated energy plan for Utah. We've got a link there for you to do that. Wednesday, February 9th is the Bastion Diversity Lecture, The Unknown Realities of a Community Activist at Westminster College. Details on how to participate on the Rallies and Resources page of krcl.org, which also reminds folks that Thursday, February 10th, Utah's Clean Slate Law goes into effect, marking the beginning of automatic record clearances in Utah. For more information or help with the expungement process, if you or someone you know has a criminal record, visit cleanslateutah.org. They're a new nonprofit instrumental in the Clean Slate Law's passage, and they work to ensure that Utahns don't miss out on opportunities because of their past. You can check the Radioactive Archives for an interview with their executive director, Noella Sudbury, last week. And February 10th is also Nonprofit Day on Utah's Capitol Hill. Your opportunity to put advocacy into practice. Check the link at Rallies and Resources online at krcl.org for more details. The Sundance Film Festival is starting to wind down. There are local screenings and Best of Fest coming up. Be sure to check krcl.org for those opportunities. For some reviews and an update, I've Zoomed with our virtual red carpet correspondent, Autumn Thatcher. Hi, Autumn. Hey, how's it going? Doing well. When we last spoke, you mentioned two films in particular that you were looking forward to seeing, and you have seen them, and I'm eager for your reviews. One's about Kanye. And one's about Evan Rachel Wood and her experience with Marilyn Manson. Let's start with Genius, a Kanye trilogy, the Netflix documentary. They're doing a documentary on me right here. Oh, Very rarely do you encounter self-contained people. This man can do everything himself. He living it. So he's like God saying, I'm about to hand you the world. Just know at any given time, I can take it away from you. You and I were musing to each other. He always wants creative control. What's going to happen? So before we get to your review, he wants creative control now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Which is funny because... You totally called it, Laura. You, you like you absolutely called it. And then like the Friday before the documentary premiered, um, he posted on Instagram saying, "I'm going to say this for the last time. Um, Netflix needs to let me into the editing room and let me. I want to have control over my own image." I mean, I'm paraphrasing. You can actually just go on Instagram and read his post. I linked yeah. it in my article as well. So we'll put a link um, in the but- show post to your. Your notes on the film. I don't think you had to be a genius to know he would at the last minute demand creative control. But let's get to your review because I read what you wrote on krcl.org under our Sundance tab where you were thinking, well, these folks, his old friends have been filming for 20 years. It's their project. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. And you changed your mind as you watched it. Yeah, I was not expecting that at all. I definitely um, would not consider myself to be like, you know, team Kanye as far as like his behavior and stuff goes. And so, but when I was watching the film, it just felt so personal. And, you know, I was watching it with my husband and he's like, so how can this guy be Kanye's good friend and not show him any of the footage and not let him sign off on it? And, And I, that is what we kept asking each other throughout the whole documentary, just because it did feel so raw and personal. And I, it just, I didn't, didn't sit right with me, I guess. Footage of a young uh, rapper with his mom before he becomes, you know, yay. Right. So who is this film for then in your estimation? So the directors actually address that in this interview that they did with IndieWire. Um, and they talk about how this film 
is for the dreamers. It's for people that have a goal and that are dreaming of doing something big with their lives. And I would 100% agree with that sentiment. I was so inspired by what I saw and just uh, really appreciative of the work that Kanye did at a young age to get to to get signed to a record label. I mean, this first installment of of the trilogy really focuses on him as a very successful producer, having um, been produced a song for Jay-Z and trying to get signed to a record label. And he had like Talib Kweli, Most Def. I mean, he had these very successful rappers advocating for him at their labels, but the labels wouldn't sign him. And because nobody, uh, it was, they were having a really hard time believing that he would be a successful rapper outside of a producer. So it that was all very interesting and he worked incredibly hard. And, and so that was inspiring. So do you give a thumbs up to what you've seen so far of what is going to be a series on Netflix pending I defi- resolution I def- of <laughs> Kanye's objections? Right. Yeah. Um, I definitely do. It, it's, it, I think it sheds a light on him and kind of gives you insight into what he was like in the before times. Um, and I, I want to keep watching. I, that's where I, I, my personal struggle is, is I'm like, I want to keep watching, but you know, I'm not, I don't make films. So maybe there's some behind the scene thing that's gone on and he signed off on stuff and who knows what's yeah. really going on. All right, let's get one more review from you. Another film you were eager to see was the documentary by Evan Rachel Wood, Phoenix Rising. An actress, but perhaps maybe most folks, if they're familiar with her, as the former girlfriend, I don't even know if that's the right word, given what's in this documentary, of Marilyn Manson. And we talked about this, too, when we were last on, how conflicted you are knowing this story now more. I feel like that's the theme of Sundance for me this year is like reconciling my own personal (laughs) feelings for these people and their life experiences. And yes, I was very conflicted for this film because I, um, in my later years, uh, not when Marilyn Manson was coming up in the nineties, but later on, I became a a fan of his music and went to some concerts with friends. And, um, but after watching this film, I, is really hard to watch. And um, no, she's very brave to talk about what she went through and experienced. And she, the film, it's a two part uh, film that will be premiering on HBO. And the director of the film actually said before they screened it that they're still editing it. So what we saw at Sundance may not be exactly what we'll show on HBO, but it's very personal, it's very um, revealing. And it's, I can, I'm going to go and delete all songs I have from Marilyn Manson on my playlist, but um, I just feel like what she's doing is very brave because she's received a lot of threats and things like that. It's about surviving abuse. This headline from Variety, Industry Mag, says, in Phoenix Rising, Evan Rachel Wood doesn't hold back on Hollywood, Marilyn Manson, or herself. Mm-hmm. So what does yeah, she say about her own, what, is, what does she say about that, about herself? So the first part of it she talks is an introduction into her life as a, um, growing up and just growing up in the world of theater and acting. And she took on some some pretty adult roles uh, at a young age. And she became, I think, most notably uh, famous for the role she played in the film 13, where she was 13 years old and had an on-screen kiss with a 20-something-year-old man. And I was confused as to how that's even legal, really. I mean, like, I guess it's just a kiss, but I haven't seen the movie. But she said from there, she was constantly placed. She was almost like this Lolita of Hollywood, where she's placed in these creepy roles that, like, you know, so she, she didn't feel good about that, about that. And then she kind of felt like she was just really naive um, and and didn't and kind of not really knowing what she was getting herself into. She was, I think, with that headline from Variety that you mentioned, I, I don't like saying that she's hard on herself because it, it's like she, as a survivor, I don't. I wouldn't want to say that she's 
should or is blaming herself for what happened to her. I think it's just that she was young and naive and in and being groomed and didn't know what that even was. And she does rec- she does talk about that. She's working on changing the law in California. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think that's where the film's focus really is going to take us in the second part. That um, is is that she, as a result of her experience, she came together with other women who have, are survivors as well from domestic violence and abuse, and she is she in California has worked really hard created this organization called uh, to write a bill called the Phoenix Act to change the statute of limitations for when a survivor can go and. Um, try to get charges placed against their abuser uh, to 10 years. And the in the film, we see that they were successful in getting the committee, legislative committee to approve that. And then later when it actually hit the floor, they rewrote it to three to five years, which felt like a defeat um, and really sad. But I will be interested to see how part two of the, the documentary uh, talks about that, but she's, she's definitely an advocate and uh, still working really hard to just help change these laws, not even in California, but around the U.S. And that is Autumn Thatcher, our virtual red carpet correspondent for the Sundance Film Festival. And for our Sundance update today, we're going to continue with the Latinx House, which returned with a full calendar of virtual programming and as an official Sundance Institute partner, I believe the first actually with breakout houses. We're going to talk with the co-founders, social entrepreneur and activist Monica Ramirez and producer and entrepreneur Olga Segura. Monica, Olga, welcome to Radioactive. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Laura. I am so excited because... um, this film, La Guerra Civil, about uh, the big boxing match, you did something just last night, I believe, Olga, where you talked with um, filmmaker Eva Longoria Baston and Oscar de la Hoya also stopped in virtually, a huge part of the programming. But I'd love to get a flavor overall for the Latinx house for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the whole initiative um, Monica, Olga, please give us your take on the Latinx House. We'll start with Monica. Well, you know, I have to say that the brain children behind the Latinx House are Olga and our other co-founder, Alex Martinez Kondrecki, because they are filmmakers and had already been in competition at Sundance. And, um, you know, we became friends through work that we'd been doing related to the Time's Up movement. And, you know, I'm an organizer and, and when they were kind of hatching up this plan to create a space at Sundance that didn't exist for the Latinx community, um, they invited me to be part of the building of that. And for folks who don't know much about the house, the Latinx house is committed to lifting up the Latinx community, the excellence across our community. There's a false narrative about who we are in this country, and there are many ways in which we're contributing. So the, the house is really focused on bringing together filmmakers, creatives of all types, change makers, organizers, political leaders, uh, to have conversations that matter to our community and to lift up those who are telling our stories through film and through other mediums. So Olga, give us your take as a filmmaker and uh, entrepreneur and this this narrative of representation. Sundance has always been dedicated to empowering folks to tell their stories. It's, it's grown and changed and had to deal with its own blind spots over the years. So uh, where do you think things stand now? Um, yeah, thank you, Lara. I, I'm, I'm just to add up to to Monica. I mean, the the reason why we created space at Sundance, um, a, a physical space to have a house at Sundance, it was so important for us because, you know, as a filmmaker, like Monica said, I premiered a film in competition in 2013, and I remember myself walking on Main Street back and forth, trying to look for like a place to go or an invitation to a, like a really cool event. And, you know, I didn't, I end up in the pizza place, you know, like, <laughs> you know, you know, with my community and trying to like, you know, celebrate what we achieved and my family. And so, uh, you know, and I think a lot of filmmakers that have had movies um, at Sundance felt the same way. I mean, we had, I I want to like really applaud other organizations that had had, um, you know, spaces, but we never had a, a house 
on Main Street where people can actually find us. And actually, we don't have to be like, you know, being stuck in the highway because it's so far away to find a place. But you know what I mean? But anyway, so I feel that it was really important to have a space for us. And and where we stand is we stand right now, like trying to to get all our community together because i think at the latinx house we believe that the power of us coming together is where we are gonna be landing um really a, a, really a, a bigger a bigger opportunity for us to find more um more space and more open like open doors together so i think that that is extremely important for us and that's why we not just have a physical space we have a platform where we uplift everything that we do well I, and i especially look at um your conversation last night with the actress eva longoria bastone who people may know from desperate housewives um, and I look now where she is with this film and what she's wanted to do with her career um, and that representation behind the camera being so important to telling Latinx stories. And Monica, earlier you said there's this false narrative and so much stereotyping that goes on in our uh, American society as a shorthand for experience. And it is so limiting, Monica. It's not, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, it's important where I think for us to underscore, it's not only limiting, it's dangerous. You know, our community has experienced discrimination, physical violence. You know, we've seen mass shootings against our community. There have been real harms that have been caused because there are stereotypes about who we are and how we're showing up. You know, there's this um, conversation that happens too often in this country that our community is taking, that we're not giving. And um, we felt really strongly that we needed to do the work to help make sure that the stories about who we are as a community and all the ways that we're showing up, that we needed to help push to make sure that those stories had the opportunity to be told and that the people who have really incredible stories, that they would also have the chance to have those stories told like excellent filmmakers like Olga and Eva and, and ultimately you know, we believe that if we can change the narrative about our community, that also means that we can help build our community up civically, economically, uh, politically, across the board. And, you know, for the 62 million of us in this country, that's critical. Well, in several of your panel discussions, virtual albeit, I'm so sorry that folks didn't get the full Sundance experience, but gosh darn this pandemic. But many of the panels were were geared toward this, like uh, the one you did on Sunday night, Monica, Truth and Healing Through Storytelling. Um, the empowerment of telling your story yourself can provide a healing experience. What was the gist or the takeaway from your panel? And does it live online so I can direct people toward it? It does live online. You should go to the latinxhouse.org and that you'll be able to find our content there. We also have our YouTube channel, so people should check us out on YouTube. And, you know, I think going back to the La Guerra Civil, which, you know, Olga was in conversation with, with Eva about, you know, the healing panel was about having agency to talk about our lives and to be able to talk about our lives in a way that isn't traumatic that, that does celebrate the, the strides that we're making and that also has the opportunity to heal some of those wounds and traumas that we've confronted. But we're not a singular narrative community. And Olga, I don't know, I'd love for you to chime in to talk about La Guerra Civil because I feel like that was part of what you were highlighting through that panel too. Yes, Olga, tell us about last night in the conversation, which I will put links in the show notes, folks, so you can check them out for yourself. Yeah, I mean... It, it, the conversation with with Oscar and Eva was so special. The movie is very special. And I think this will be um, a great opportunity for us to see and for everybody, not just us in our community, for everybody to see the differences that are in our community. You know, we I am Mexican, born and raised in Mexico. Monica is Mexican-American. We have a lot of like, similarities, but we are very different. And there's a lot of, um, you know, things that we need to solve within our community. You know, Oscar de la Hoya was Mexican-American and Julio Cesar Chavez, as you guys know, is like 
the the legendary boxer um so there, there was a, a big big controversy there you know because oscar de la olla was not accepted by the mexicans in mexico and uh and the mexican americans were confused you know so i think that there is there is a, a big opportunity for people that don't know so much about our community to watch this movie it's not a boxing movie it's a movie about humanity yeah and it's celebrating the 25th anniversary or marking, I don't know if it's celebrating, but marking and trying to unpack this fight from 25 years ago between these two um, champions of boxing. Yeah, and I feel that another big thing about this movie is that this is the first time ever that we open the festival. I mean, we're so bummed that we weren't there, but that our movie, like a movie about our community, opens and premieres the festival. It's a big thing. So I think that like really applaud Eva, applaud Oscar de la Hoya, because as you saw, and please watch our um, conversation, but Oscar de la Hoya, reach out to Eva to ask her to do this uh, with her. And, and I feel that that's pretty like really incredible that, I, that he chose a woman to do it, you know? <laughs> well, and the Latinx house is trying to foster more of those connections among Latinx filmmakers within the entire industry. How big, um, can you give me any numbers on how many folks of Latinx origins are part of the filmmaking industry? Anybody got a handle on that? Well, this is exactly part of the problem, Laura. We don't because our community isn't being lifted up enough. So there are so many incredible genius filmmakers who are doing beautiful work, but they're not getting resources. They're not getting what they need to be able to have their shows even make it into the light. So, you know, I mean, we could throw out a guess. I think that probably there are dozens of names and individuals who we know and who people know, but behind those dozens of people, there are dozens and dozens more. And so our hope is that we're lifting up the, um, the big names that people are familiar with, but that we're also finding those filmmakers that no one knows yet and needs to know. Well, I do want to give an opportunity to both of you to talk about the other things that you're working on, because Monica, as we were prepping for this, you said, you know, I'm not necessarily a filmmaker, although I think you're about to be. Uh, you're more of an activist, and I've reached you is it in Ohio, where you are based, and your organization, Justice for Migrant Women, and your Humans Who Feed Us initiative. Can you tell me briefly about that? Sure. Um, Justice for Migrant Women is an organization that's focused on migrant women's rights, and uh, we have been similarly trying to change narratives about communities in our country, and in this case, about folks in the food industry. Um, and we've told the stories of farm workers and other immigrant food workers who have helped to hold our country up during this COVID pandemic. So it's an initiative that will continue. But we also have a lot of lot of great things coming for the Latinx house. So I want to make sure that we have some time to lift up some of those. And I can just share quickly that one of the panels that we did at, at Sundance that hopefully people will check out is a power on uh, as, a, as a panel on the power of the Latinx community. And that was supported by the Ford Foundation. It's part of this Latinx learning lab that we've created. And it's just the first of a series of critical conversations that will be coming in 2022. So that's one of my big announcements for 2022 for the Latinx House. And again, the latinxhouse.org to follow the work of this nonprofit and its initiatives moving forward out of Sundance. Olga, what are you working on and how can people catch up with you and your work? Yeah, um, so I'm co-directing uh, my first feature uh, a documentary for the first time. It's about the three Latin Grammy winner, uh, Carla Morrison. Um, and, and she's incredible. And I've been, you know, working on this for the last five years. Um, as a producer, I have so many other different projects, but I don't talk about until they're like actually almost there. Um, this this documentary is it's almost uh, finished. And then Monica and I actually work on Monica helped um, and, and and really help to to give birth to this other documentary about the car, uh, caravana, the caravan that uh, happened a couple of years ago. And it's it's a beautiful documentary about, you know, uh, the migrants that, that come to this country. And, and, and basically it's just to, to again, to create um, and, and highlight uh, why 
these people are coming here is not just to, um, you know, get a better dream or a better life is basically because they're running for like a better life and not be killed. So this is, it's, it's a great, great documentary. And, and what's hopefully it called? We, uh, we are, uh, we, the migrants, we, the migrants. So I think that that's going to be coming soon. Uh, the director is Marcus, uh, James Marcus Haney. He embedded himself for more than 70 days with all the caravan and, and was there. And I'm really excited for other projects. But like Monica said, the Latinx house is, is, is just going to be launching a couple, in, a couple of incubators to support filmmakers. So please stay tuned. Follow us on our social media, the Latinx House, and um, and and our uh, website, the latinxhouse.org, because there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, opportunities uh, to to just follow up and and support our organization. Olga Segura and Monica Ramirez, co-founders of the Latinx House. Check tonight's show notes for a link to all their programming, and you've got to see La Guerra Civil. It's fantastic. I'll also put a link in the show notes to the conversation that Olga had with Eva Longoria Baston and Oscar de la Hoya. It's on their YouTube channel. You don't need an account or anything to go see it. It's fantastic. Coming up next, community co-host Nick Burns will be back with University of Utah professor Jorge Contreras and his new book, The Genome Defense. But here is a song from the artist that Olga mentioned, Carla Morrison, Eres Tú, on KRCL 10,000 nonprofits like Women of the World, which needs practical English volunteers and mentors. You can help forcibly displaced women make Salt Lake City their home and build community through self-reliance and trust. Details at womenofworld.org. Welcome back to Radioactive. This is Nick Burns. And for the rest of the show tonight, pretty exciting conversation. I was quite surprised. And for my guest, I want to welcome author Professor George L. Contreras from the S.J. Quinney College of Law. George, hi. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thank you. I want to talk about your new book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. So thank you. Uh, I'm sure you've written many, many legal books. But before we jump into this one, which I thought was not what I expected at all in a very positive way, um, you teach at the College of Law up at the University of Utah. Among various areas, you cover intellectual property law, genetics in the law. You're a University of Utah presidential scholar uh, from the S.J. Quinney College of Law. You also won the 2018-19 Faculty Scholarship Award of law, if I've got that right, mm-hmm. and also the Use 2020 Distinguished Research Award. So congrats on that. Thank um, you. Your book, The Genome Defense, man, this reads like a mystery, like it's a contemporary historical thriller. I was up late last night. I got up early this morning to finish it, and I already know the results. So what was this like for you, this change of pace to write this kind of book? So I decided to write this book because I knew that this case and these stories were important for a wide audience to understand. And and I realized that most academic writing, most of my 
prior writing was not interesting, not even comprehensible to most normal people. And, and I thought that was a shame that these huh. important stories are getting lost in, you know, jargon filled articles that nobody reads. So have you sold the film rights? <laughs> no, anybody who wants to contact me or my agent about those, uh, please do. Okay, so this is a book about the the lawsuit that many Utahns are familiar with, the myriad genetics case and patenting of human genes. But I must admit, this is a lot like, or could be a lot like, you know, the Mark Ruffalo Dark Waters movie about DuPont and Teflon or a civil action that I can think of, which was John Travolta and had to do with Beatrice Foods and W.R. Grace and dumping carcinogens and causing leukemias. But your book, you know, you start with you start with President Clinton's announcement of the completion of the sequencing, the human genome project, which Clinton back in the late uh, what about the year 2000, mm -hmm. he compared it to Columbus sailing across the Atlantic and, quote, discovering the new world. But of course, Columbus, uh, his actions initiated a massive plunder and massacre and genocide of, you know, then new world resources. Um, and would you compare the sort of patenting of human genes to a new kind of plunder? There, there certainly are some analogies. And I, I teach property law in addition yeah. to uh, intellectual property. And, and definitely, you know, there is this idea that the first one to find something can claim rights to it and claims ownership to it. And I, I think that's problematic. Okay, well, so very good. Like I said, many people know this case and your book is all about patents. So real quickly for folks, just to get up to speed, what's a patent? What's the patent officer? And how does a person get one? <laughs> sure. So patents have been around since 1790. They're built into the US Constitution. Um, and basically they give inventors an exclusive right to be the only one in the country for 20 years to make users sell whatever their new invention is, right? And we do this so that uh, inventors don't get ripped off as soon as they put a new product on the market. So they have time to recoup their R&D expenses uh, that they had to use to make an invention. So it encourages invention. And again, patents expire over time. And I think people are familiar with maybe an analogy with copyrights and so many years and so on. You focus on the courts, you focus on Congress, you focus on patents. But what really struck me about your book, I think that kept me up late at night in the genome defense, you write about the people, you write about all these individuals and it really, and, and, I, and I mean this, it came, it made the book come alive. There's ACLU attorney Chris Hansen, there's these individual plaintiffs, there's all these other lawyers and scientists. Uh, Michael Crichton, the author, makes an appearance. Um, what took you that direction to make this about the people? You know, there there's plenty of writing about this case and all of these other cases uh, that, that just look at the doctrine and the legal theories and the court decisions. But at the end of the day, I really became convinced that this case and most legal cases are about people. People have to bring lawsuits. They're affected by what the laws are. And, and I thought the way to really bring home what the implications and impact of this case was, was to show how the real people out there in the world were affected by it. Well, and it really, I mean, it really creates a readable narrative, right? Like you say, you get away from sort of the dry filed by the plaintiff as Miss Amicus brief, and then on July 27th, whatnot. But here I'm learning, you know, what did Chris Hansen do before he took up this case? Um, and I want to ask about this one man described as a Robin Hood, quote, notorious in patent circles for challenging pharmaceutical industry patents. So I'm going, woohoo, Robin Hood. So tell us about Dan Ravaker, the Ravager. Dan, Dan Ravisher, he, he was a big law firm patent lawyer in New York, um, and the ACLU decided to bring this case to challenge patents on human genes, but nobody at the ACLU was a patent lawyer. They have 100 lawyers on staff. They're civil rights lawyers, free speech lawyers, constitutional lawyers. 
um, didn't know patents. I mean, some people had some basic familiarity, but they needed someone on their team who would be a patent lawyer. And it turned out no law firm in the country that they could find was interested in helping them on this case because every <laughs> law firm wanted to be involved, represent somebody who had a patent in this area. And so Dan Ravisher was this unique guy who founded a, he left his law firm to form a foundation that would challenge patents that he thought were overreaching in some way and had some success at that. Most uh, importantly, he challenged one of Pfizer's patents on Lipitor, um, the, at that time, the best-selling drug of all time, and uh, got a lot of press coverage and uh, acclaim for that. He didn't challenge that patent in the way that the ACLU was going to go after the gene patents, um, but he knew patents, and he was their patent guy on the inside. Well, it's hard not to root for somebody who's going up against pharmaceutical giants these days, you know, especially, and we could spend a whole nother hour talking about vaccines and Moderna and trying to patent <clears throat> um, medicines that, that we all paid to create. But not to get too far afield, <laughs> um, thank you, George. Your, your book's mostly about the Myriad Genetics case their patent on the human gene related to breast cancer risk. And before we jump into this case, um, and this is something I didn't learn until I read your book, there were already plenty of patents granted to human genes and associated court cases. And you write by about 2005, over 4,000 of some 25,000 human genes were already patented. This sounds crazy that this never came up until the ACLU in the Myriad case? It, this was known by experts, uh, you know, in the field of which there are, you know, a handful around. I, I was one of these people. I knew about this uh, way before this case went on. But again, that's the thing I realized. Nobody else who wasn't an expert in patent law and genetics, this really complicated intersection of areas, had really heard of this. Yeah, I mean, it's it. I was shocked to see that this wasn't sort of a trendsetter. This was this was the ACLU going in and telling or trying to get the courts to tell everyone that what had been done for the last 10 or 15 years was wrong, that these patents had been granted. Um, exactly. So Myri Myriad Genetics had this patent to these two breast cancer genes, uh, and they managed it exclusively. And this was intriguing to me. And you go into this in the book. There's some charts and other information that... Some of these other institutions and public public institutions, universities, and so on that held these patents, just let anybody use them. They might have a patent, but other people could make use. But Myriad, this was exclusive. Nobody else could use it. Nobody else could do what they did. Um, no licensings to other institutions. Um, and I wonder, that kind of exclusivity, was that common at this time? In, in some cases, it was. Okay. You know, the first, the first gene patents got issued to universities like University of Michigan, who discovered the gene related to cystic fibrosis. And they got a patent, but they licensed it to anyone who wanted to use it for a pretty nominal amount. Um, and so it was never an issue until companies started to get into the picture. And Myriad was one of the early ones. They decided, you know, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, these are big diseases, important diseases, and we could make a real business out of being the only one in the country that could sell these diagnostic tests. But there were other companies, Athena Diagnostics and others who uh, controlled patents on more rare diseases that you know fewer people were affected by, but still very deadly diseases, and they uh, monopolized those tests. And you mentioned that in the year that the Supreme Court bumped the case back down for review at the lower level, Myriad made another $250 million on this. Um, so money's never far away here. Um, it's about at that point in your book, and here we are in Utah, and I hope people elsewhere read your book too, but here we are in Utah, and it's about that point where the University of Utah shows up. So take us through, take me through how Myriad Genetics is connected to the University of Utah. So Myriad really was a spin-out from the University of Utah. And this is a common pattern with university technology development. There are researchers, scientists at the university who have an idea for 
something that they could commercialize with a company. And universities don't sell products or manufacture stuff or run commercial businesses. That has to be done outside of a university at a company. And so Mark Skolnick, uh, who was a faculty member here at the U, uh, formed a company with a local businessman, Pete Meldrum, uh, who put up the initial money for it with the sole purpose of discovering this BRCA gene and then making a business of it. And because of some federal legislation, the university had to retain ownership of those patents. Myriad was the exclusive licensee. They were the only ones who could use them, but the university owned the patents and the university got money back from every test that was run. And I think most R1 institutions across the country have some version of what we all know as Research Park up on the hill, which is a bunch of really, 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 really nice buildings um, with good architecture that sort of jump between what's a university. And again, I'm talking a public university and a private corporation. So I wanna ask and remind listeners about the Ba Dole Act that goes back to the early Reagan years that first allowed public institutions to have patents up until what, 1980, 1981, if a university did research, there wasn't a patent. And I don't care whether it was exclusive or licensed or open to everybody, like you mentioned, University of Michigan. But Ba Dole really paved the way, it seems to me, for what Myriad ended up doing. Right. That act, which was, you know, it was a a, a product of the early Reagan years, the, uh, the the commercial war with Japan, this fear that America was losing its competitiveness. Um, the idea was universities do this research funded by the federal government, let them patent it. Um, if they get a patent, they can license those patents to the private sector and companies can then make a business out of it. And, and that did happen in a very big way. Well, and we could argue that, you know, the research then became what served corporations, right? We have not a whole lot of research on malaria drugs, but we have 50 different versions of Prozac. Um, but that's probably a different show. <laughs> this is Radioactive. I am Nick Burns. I'm talking with Professor George Contreras of the University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law. His new, very readable book called The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns your DNA. Um, so yeah, Badol sort of paved the way for these public-private partnerships. Uh, and you mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to get back to it. This case was filed in New York, and there were many groups and, and people who sided with the ACLU, but there were plenty of people out there who were mighty skeptical and did not want to join this lawsuit at all. Obviously, major corporations, but you mentioned law firms who didn't want to get involved. Who were the people who wanted to stay way away from this? Yeah, well, law firms, all the, the patent bar and the patent industry was generally pretty unhappy about this case. And these patents had been issued for about 20 years by the time this got up uh, through the appellate system. Patent lawyers thought this was settled law. People had, you know, there, an entire generation of patent lawyers grew up getting these types of patents. So it was very disruptive. Um, and the ACLU lawyers were criticized heavily uh, for bringing a suit uh, to overturn something that kind of everybody knows is perfectly legal to do. Um, you know, <laughs> obviously the biotech industry was not happy about the suit. Yeah. There, there were <laughs> others, of course. Well, and even for the ACLU, this was a little outside their traditional lane. This wasn't a straight up civil rights case. It wasn't a voting case. It wasn't even a free speech case. Although you do get into a free speech aspect when it comes to genes and genetic tests and so on. But it's intriguing the number of people who lined up against. Um, and initially the case also wanted to take on the US Patent Office as well. So you had the Solicitor General of the United States involved in a case that was suing the United States. That's right. And the remarkable thing about this case is that the solicitor, the United States gets sued all the time and the yeah. Department of Justice and the Solicitor General generally defend those agencies who are being sued. This case was very unusual because the Solicitor General 
did not back the patent office who issued these patents. In fact, it argued that there shouldn't be patents on naturally occurring DNA. And you even mentioned, and I didn't know this, you even mentioned when it actually came to the final Supreme Court arguments, and I want to ask about that, that the time that would normally go to the ACLU, he gave some of the minutes up or some of the minutes were given up to the Solicitor General because they were really arguing the same side in many ways. Not quite, but almost. Um, exactly. <laughs> Down to the minutes. Okay, so something that comes up here is the patent court. And I wasn't familiar with the patent court at all. The patent court, its role, um, it's sort of a unique court in the US. And it wasn't something I knew about at all until I read your book. This is another one of those obscure things that people in the industry know and, and the rest of the real world doesn't. It, and the official name is the uh, US Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. And, you know, the way the U.S. court system works, the federal courts, you've got 90 or so district trial courts around the country. They hear all the federal cases. And then you get appeals, right? Appeals go to the circuit courts. Here in Utah, we've got the 10th Circuit, um, you know, 2nd Circuit in New York, 9th Circuit in California. But again, back around 1980, there was this idea that patent cases are so complicated that we need a special court to hear all of these appeals. And that was created. And that's the Federal Circuit got nicknamed the Patent Court because they hear all of the patent appeals. And, um, you know, there's been some criticism of that system. So do those judges on the Patent Court, do they have a background coming up through chemistry, hard sciences, um, engineering, some of the issues that come before the Patent Court? A, a lot of them do, a, okay. a lot of them do. And, and the reason is that um, to practice before the patent office, you to sit for what's called the patent bar exam, you are required to have a technical degree, science or engineering. So most patent lawyers in the country have that. So most people with expertise in this field of law have that kind of background. Yeah, just something I think listeners should know. <clears throat> So day's end, you know, and I want to spend a few minutes here at the end talking about the actual SCOTUS and, and how you, you build to that climax in your book. But, but day's end, you know, this, this is a gene patenting case related to breast cancer. And we certainly have a court of public opinion. And, I, and you write about this in the book, but I wondered, what are your thoughts about the effectiveness of the PR campaigns from each side? You know, both sides were using television, news, other media, uh, and you do go into that, but I wonder, what do you think about the effectiveness of what each side did? I do think it was effective. I mean, one of the most important things about the ACLU's case was its use of the media and its ability to sway public opinion, which they are very good at, which again is very different mm -hmm. from your typical patent case, which turns on these highly technical points of law and technology the ACLU didn't view this as a patent case so much as a civil rights case. And in a civil rights case, getting popular opinion on your side is very important because judges look out their window and they see protesters, you know, they see uh, people on their block with signs in their yard um, advocating some position. They, they know this is important to the American people. And uh, the ACLU was very good at that. They got a segment on 60 Minutes, they were on the Today Show, they had YouTube videos, massive advertising, and it, I think it was effective. And of course, Chris Hansen, the lead ACLU attorney who actually retired, he'd been at the ACLU so long, retired, you point out before the case actually got to the Supreme Court, but he was the one, it seems, who actually made the decision that this would be the gene patent they would go after. There were many that many other gene patents that the ACLU considered. And it seems to me that that was very smart of him to pick something that would be, I guess, arguably pretty easy to turn into a PR campaign. Absolutely. I mean, as sad as this is to say, breast cancer is probably the number one uh, disease in the United States in terms of advocacy and fundraising and public awareness. And everybody in this country has probably been affected by the disease, either directly, they, they've had it, or a close relative or a friend has had it. So in looking at all of those 4,000 genes that were patented, um, the ACLU could have picked any of them. They're rare diseases. They were really uh, 
unethical business practices that some companies, not Myriad, but other companies uh, did much worse things with their patents. And, um, but the diseases were just so rare and so little known that um, they didn't make attractive targets for this kind of lawsuit. Yeah. And again, we mentioned Michael Crichton comes up, you know, he was an advocate for um, not patenting genes. Angelina Jolie, famously in the news, because she was someone with this with this genetic link to incredibly high risk of breast and ovarian cancer. But speaking of public campaigns, you know, it seems to me these days the Supreme Court is seen as as often political. Um, and I wonder about politics in the Myriad court case. It's it's also remarkable in that it was a unanimous 9-0 Supreme Court decision, which we don't see a lot of these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, an opinion written by Justice Thomas, who often is a divisive voice on the court. Um, but I, I have to think that even whether conservative or, or liberal, you know, these issues about health and access to health um, touched every one of the justices. Yeah, nine to, nine to zero written by Thomas and a couple other justices had other thoughts. Um, about the Supreme Court, we've only got time for a couple more questions and I wanna thank you for taking time to be with us today. But the Supreme Court, you write, quote, arguing before the Supreme Court is part theater, part science, part law school exam. And you also compare the proceedings to, you know, a Harry Potter film set. Um, it's a pretty amazing thing. And again, your book builds to this climax. Uh, and you spend a lot of you spend a lot of pages there, even though we all know the outcome. I thought that was definitely handled. And you certainly kept me turning the pages. It, it is. There's a lot of theater um, and trappings that go along with the Supreme Court. Um, and it's it's quite, uh, quite deliberate, I think. You know, in other countries, you go to their high court, it's in an office building, the judges are wearing suits. Uh, this is, this is the, the, the spectacle of it, I think, uh, adds something. There's... There's costuming and, you know, there's the, well, the robes, of course, but costuming, the design, all the paneling and so on. Uh, one more name real quick. I want to ask about Eric Lander, who comes on board late and writes an amicus brief. And that seems to really set the stage for how you write the failings of the attorneys representing Myriad. Yes, Eric Lander, who's a prominent, prominent uh, geneticist and scientist, now one of the, the president's science advisors, uh, has this brainstorm as he's <laughs> riding in a taxi uh, one night in Cambridge about uh, something that he finds to be a mistake in the patent court's opinion in this case. And he takes it upon himself to do some research and submits his own brief to the Supreme Court, which to the surprise of everyone, the justices, especially Justice Breyer, who just announced his retirement, um, latches onto and in kind of a surprise move during oral arguments, really grills the attorney for Myriad on this brief, which is not part of the evidence of the case, not part of the record. It's submitted at the 11th hour by someone who's not even involved in the case, yet it, it really does color the, uh, the whole tenor of the argument, which is a rough, it's a rough examination for the attorney for Myriad, who I think did about as well as could be expected yeah. in the circumstances. Do you think he hadn't read it or hadn't seen it? That's unlikely. I, I think he was very well prepared, but this issue, if you go find it, it's buried, it's a small issue buried on page 52 yeah. or so of their brief. And Certainly not something that th these amicus briefs, you know, more than 50 of them are submitted to, to the court. They yeah. very seldom come up in the oral argument. The book is The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA by Professor George Contreras up at the University of Utah, who teaches intellectual property law and genetics and law. Justice Breyer, you just mentioned, just announced his retirement literally hours ago. Um, any thoughts? 
Uh, he he is a stalwart on the court. He has a little bit of personal history. I, I had him as a professor um, in oh, law cool. school, and so I've known, I've followed his career for for a long, long time. Um, and he's he's brilliant. He's an absolutely brilliant thinker, and he's interested in intellectual property. And I think we have him to thank for the court. Mm taking this case, although we'll never know uh, why they took it. I, he gave a lot of clues that he was interested in hearing it and was a real science maven on the court. I think we're going to lose something hmm. um, when he leaves. And your book does end on that note, sort of here we are 10 years later. Where are we now? There's been moves in Congress um, and so on. So I think the future is kind of up in the air. What are you working on now? Do we have another fun thriller like this coming? <laughs> oh, you know, when you look around there, there's so many fascinating stories in in the law that are not well enough understood. So I am I'm, I'm still recovering from this book, which just came <laughs> out a few months ago. But uh, but I think I think this is the way to go. I, I, I think that there is an interest in the general public to understand more of how our legal system works. No, and you did a great job with because this book is incredibly readable. And I mean that literally. I stayed up late last night to finish and got up early this morning to get through the last couple chapters. So, Professor George Contreras, thank you very much. The book is The Genome Defense Inside the Epic Legal, legal Battle, rather, to determine who owns your DNA. And at least of now, it seems like we do. So, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. KRCL community co host Nick Burns. Check tonight's show notes for links to all of our guests, their organizations, their causes, their books. Hopefully something inspired you to take action or get involved in your community. I'm Laura Jones. Questions, comments, suggestions, send us an email, radioactive at krcl.org. Our thanks to you for plugging into your community here. Weeknights at six, it's Radioactive on KRCL. Have a great night, everybody.